This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Chad Pytel filling in for Ben. Today I'm joined by the Bob Vila of the internet, Scott Ford, founder and COO of CorgiBytes. Scott, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Why are you the Bob Vila of the internet? <laughs> I like to take apps and breathe new life in them the same way that you know Bob Vila did on uh, you know this old house, and the way that the people who currently are in this old house continue to do so. I think their skill for you know taking an old structure and just through craftsmanship breathing new life or taking the beauty that was that was there already and you know making it more visible is is really cool. And I, I like to try to do that in software. Is this old house on everywhere? In the U.S.? I think so. It's on PBS. I know. Yeah. (laughs) I have this weird perspective on this old house because it's filmed in Massachusetts. And growing up here and living here, it's like in all the towns that I live in and know about. So I have this weird perspective because it's like this local show. I didn't think everyone knew about it, but it turns out it's this huge thing. Yeah. So I, I, I say that, but I just discovered it. It was probably like uh, about a little, little under a year ago when I was trying to find a really good metaphor for taking an app and, and restoring it. Mm-hmm. And I never would have thought to use restoration or renovation based on the way I saw people approach that challenge on, like, the, say, the DIY channel. Right. Which, to, to me, like, to be disrespectful to people that practice that, that kind of work there, <laughs> but so many of their shows seem to be like, let's do this in a hurry. Yep. Um, the homeowner's gone out for dinner. Let's see if we can completely renovate, get them a new kitchen before they get back. And watching that and just seeing all the corners that were getting cut and all the um, the challenges that they would run into, like, oh, well, just cover it over. No one will notice. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, that's, right. that sounds, you know. Yeah, that in, in no way is a metaphor for software development. <laughs> Although <laughs> it would make for hilarity if, like, when the product manager goes away for a weekend you completely replace everything they would you'd replace it with nothing there would be nothing there (laughs) right 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 we uh we started from scratch this week while you're gone (laughs) and we have nothing yeah we have nothing the show that i love is homes on homes have you do you know this show i don't it's from canadian tv but it's on (laughs) in the u.s now and he is just so knowledgeable about everything but the premise of the show is that people buy houses which and and discover that they're terrible after they buy them like that there's asbestos in them that it was built all incorrectly that it's literally falling down around their heads and he comes in and he makes everything right i have to watch this show yeah the other one i love is kitchen nightmares where gordon ramsay comes in to a restaurant and, you know, food is rotten in the refrigerator. He swears up a storm and then he turns it all around in like a 24-hour period. <laughs> but both of those shows are super negative, right? right? They're founded on the premise that everything is terrible and an expert is going to fix it. And in Kitchen Nightmares, it very often means completely clearing out and cleaning the entire restaurant completely redecorating and replacing the entire menu. <laughs> oh, wow. That's drastic. And homes on homes, it's very often major renovations because they've discovered a fundamental problem with the house needs to be fixed. 
But this old house is obviously different, and I think that's why you connected with the metaphor, because it's positive, right? So people bought an old house, like a car. You know, they bought the old house, and they're going to fix it up. They're going to improve it. It wasn't even necessarily bad to begin with. It was just old, and they're going to renovate it and keep it with the style and improve it. And that's yeah. what it seems like you've connected with on the code side. Yeah, and the the another aspect of like you know what I'm trying to call software remodeling, and just trying to like use that term instead of talking about legacy code or you know like just talk about it in the terms of a remodeling project. You know, kind of in the way that you know if my partner is complaining about the the kitchen we have not being functional for whatever we want to do. I feel like if a software developer was presented with that scenario, it would be like, well, just bulldoze the house. We can build the perfect kitchen. And that's often doesn't make a lot of sense or like there's not a really budget for it. Or, you know, I think it comes from a developer, you know, having too narrow of a focus on like mm. that one requirement, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was like, well, of course you could, but you could build the perfect kitchen if you started from scratch with, with no house, you know, especially if you're ignoring all the other details, like, you know, cost budget, the way it needs to interact with the other parts of the system. Yeah. So. so I understand that you got started working on a big legacy project that is pretty interesting. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so I, I got started on the uh, X31 Experimental Fighter. It was uh, one of the first projects I did professionally. It was a joint project between the United States and the uh, German uh, government. And one of the X-planes, which in the United States is the like these uh, this series of experimental aircraft that I have built to test out a, a different aspect of avionics. Um, so like X1 broke the sound barrier, for example. Mm-hmm. There have been several Xs since then that have you know set height and speed records and all other kinds of stuff. This aircraft was designed to see how thrust vectoring could be used to improve the maneuverability of an aircraft. And uh, you know some of the technology that it proved out is, is in use in modern aircraft today. And one of the interesting things about it is that it was built in the 19, mid-1980s, like 1985, mm-hmm. with the best technology available in the 80s. And then the, you know, they did all of this really cool research on it, and they kind of put it away, set it on the shelf. Then they, they brought it back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and decided that they wanted to do more research on it. And that presented an interesting problem because you had mid-1980s technology being used near the turn of the century. And a lot of the hardware and software that was used to build and keep the aircraft running required very old computers in order to do so. The component that I worked on was the part of the airplane that loaded code onto the aircraft and then ran the tests to verify that the airplane was safe to fly. And that would only run on a 286 16 megahertz with uh, 4 megs of RAM. Anything more capable than that, it would crash. So the, uh, the Navy had this big problem of trying to keep these old computers alive. And we were tasked with seeing if we could take that software application that served that very you know, specific and important purpose and replace it with something that would run on you know, modern hardware at the time, which was, um, I think we were targeting uh, Windows 2000, Windows NT4, um, you know, along those lines. So, you just needed to press the power button on the front <laughs> of the, uh, the, the, what is it called? The turbo, the, pu- the turbo button. <laughs> you, you joke, but like anything faster, anything more capable than 286 with 16, anything more capable, anything faster than, uh, it had the clock speed had to be exactly exactly 16 megahertz. Yeah. Because there was timing that was built into the, the software that right. like, was like based on the, the clock speed of the, uh, of the processor. What programming language was the system in? Uh, that was written in Modula 2, the original uh, uh-huh. app. 
Uh-huh. And uh, we ended up replacing it with uh, another Pascal variant called uh, Delphi. It sounds like for this project, you did decide to replace everything. We, we did and we didn't. Okay. So because we were part of a larger system, we still had to accept all the old inputs and outputs mm-hmm. of the old system. We had to talk to existing pieces of hardware using existing protocols, and we couldn't change the other, other side of those. We also had a really large library of test scripts that had been written by test engineers. These were the test scripts that were used to, to verify that the plane was safe to fly. And we couldn't modify those either. Either We needed to be able to run those without modification. So in essence, we had like, you know, if you look kind of like at our system, at that app as like a black box. We needed to be able to replace that component without any of the other pieces that depended on it, either for input or for output, having to change. So we did end up replacing the internal, like we, we did replace that component but with the larger system didn't change if that makes any sense. Yeah. So yeah. so that was really neat like like really getting to see like the constraints the or how, how to deal with constraints that are placed on you by the by previous you know people who've come before. Mm-hmm. Is that when you discovered you love working on legacy systems? <laughs> it is. It is. Well, okay, that's not when I discovered it. So in retrospect, that's when I got I got bit, but I don't think it was really until you know watching watching this old house that mm-hmm. I that I kind of like I kind of glued everything together for me, and I looked back at my career and tried to analyze like why have I job hopped every eighteen months, like pretty much like almost my entire career. Why did I do that? Mm-hmm. And why is it that I really liked some projects and I didn't like others? And why was it that most of the projects that I worked on, the ones that I liked, why did I like them at first and then not like them later? And the pattern that I noticed was that the projects that I liked when I started them, there was something flawed that needed attention and needed fix needed fixing. And I, I worked on fixing it to the extent that I could. And then when there was nothing left to fix or nothing that I could fix, you know, I got bored. I wanted to move on and, and find, you know, something else that needed fixing. So Yeah. So you like it. You like working yeah. on legacy code, legacy systems and improving them. But obviously not everybody does. Right. What are some of the reasons why you think people don't like it? I think there's a lot of negativity about the way we talk about those systems. We have legacy, brownfield or dirt field. There's a refactoring, which isn't necessarily a negative, doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation mm-hmm. within the software world. But outside of it, it does because it's a word that nobody know, understands its meaning. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if I'm talking to you know a product owner who's not very savvy and I mention the word refactoring, I'm going to have quite a challenge on my hands explaining like the value of that and explaining why that's important. Right. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of negativity around apps that are been written by somebody else. Uh, I think there's also challenges in the way that we deal with them because the constraints on those projects are placed on us by somebody else. And those constraints can be very difficult to cope with. Right. Well, obviously, like in your, in your case, you know, you're working with two governments, right? Right. <laughs> the United States and Germany. It was probably for a contractor for the governments, right? Right. And were you even directly working for that contractor or were you like a contractor of a contractor of a contractor? Let's see, we were, we were, I guess... Two levels down two levels from down. the U.S. Navy, so right. it's yeah. So <laughs> right, so you probably can't even talk to the like end customer. No, we we could. You so could, great. In, yeah, in that case, we could. Like it was treated as a big team. Mm-hmm. So, but there there are certainly instances where you're not able to, or if you show up, you're supposed to pretend that you work for the parent contractor. Right. Like like they present you as being their team. So yeah. you know, politics can definitely play a part. Yeah. Well, at Thoughtbot, we do rotations and it's founded on the premise that no matter how exciting something is even the most and most of what we do is pretty early stage startup entirely new application 
But even in that scenario, like three, four months in, and if not then, like definitely six or eight months in, you want to move on. You want to solve new things and not be bogged down. So we do rotations Mm -hmm. between two and four months. And the idea is like, let's move people around before it gets to that point. Let's move people off while they're still happy with things. Yeah. And there's a general sense, I think, that people don't want to get stuck working on the same thing forever. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's an aspect because, you know, our industry moves so fast. Right. And, you know, the next job is going to there's, – there's this fear that the next job will require skills that the project I'm on isn't giving me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it'll, it'll require knowledge of the, the latest version of the framework that I'm working with. But the version of the framework I'm working with is, you know, several releases back. Right. And so if I want to start a new project and still use that framework, I'm not familiar with the newer version of it. So like, say, Rails, for example – working on legacy Rails projects. I've yet to use Rails 4 on a production app. Mm. So, you know, I, there are plenty of apps that I'm working on migrating in that direction. Right. But, you know, that's the a product of the apps that I take a look right. at. And I, I know for a fact that there are lots of very popular apps out there written in Rails that are on Rails 2 or Rails 3 still. Mm-hmm. And you know, the teams want to move them forward and can't. Obviously, there are sometimes business or budget reasons why that can't happen. But sometimes it's just that, you know, so much has changed in the time that has gone by, that upgrade would be even more difficult than possible. Like, are there strategies that you have for dealing with those problems that cause people not to move forward? I look at it like a giant elephant, and I can only eat it one bite at a time. And... (laughs) Like I, if, I do not condone the eating of elephants. I do not just condone say, you know. Yes. Um, Scott Ford like, of Corgi like, Bites might, but Thoughtbot does not. But this idea that like you have this, uh, this you have this huge insurmountable problem, and that the only way the only way to cope with it is um, any any really big problem, you have to break it break it down into smaller problems and solve those smaller problems first. It's, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the, the sheer enormity of the big problem mm-hmm. and at least make progress in the right direction and like let that forward momentum you know, be a goal, but try not to let it you know, overwhelm you too much that, it's like, that it seems huge. There, there's an app that I'm working on right now. There's a set of breaking changes between Rails 3.2 and Rails 4 that we're coping with mm-hmm. that you know, there's, there is a migration path that we can do, and we have we what, have a, what is what is that? The strong strong parameters. Ah, uh, yeah, I figured that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a project for just an you know pulling it. We've pulled in the strong parameters gem, mm-hmm. and we're slowly you know controller by controller, you know converting them all over. But it's taking time. Mm-hmm. It's taking you know quite a bit of time. That's probably the the biggest challenge there, and then also just making sure that we build up enough coverage to give ourselves enough confidence that. Um, if we did flip that switch, that we wouldn't be introducing other latent failures. Yeah. So I guess you have to stay positive and celebrate the small wins. Like, so while you're eating the elephant, <laughs> every yeah. bite has got to be like really, you know, you got to celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's um, that can be really challenging when you're working on a project that's that's kind of gone into you know what might be called maintenance mode. Right. Because you're if you look at like the eighty twenty rule or kind of the you know, the growth of, of a system, you've got that huge spike up front where it's really easy to observe the positive impact of change. And then the growth rate really slows mm-hmm. off. Like you're still doing new stuff. It's just, it's taking you longer and longer to do anything or the changes that you're applying are less observable over a short period. 
So I, I, th I feel like it's really helpful to, you know, collect data on what you're doing and then periodically look back at like what you accomplished over like say a month or two month period. So for example, in the project that I'm most active on right now, you know, we turned on uh, code climate and just started. What was that like when you first turned it on? <laughs> it, it, it really wasn't bad. So okay, the, good. the lead developer was really nervous. He was like, oh, my code's awful. It wasn't as bad as I was expecting. It was um, like a 1.5-ish, 6-ish, uh -huh. um, you know, out of 4. And we just, you know, about every week we increased it by 0.02. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now we're, we're well past 2.0. And it's 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 nice to you know kind of look at the look at the graph of of its right. growth, right? And it's you know it's been it's been very consistent. It's been slow and steady, and you know just making a choice that we're not going to make anything worse. We're only going to make things better, right? So if we get the if we get the alert from that system that we've reduced the letter grade of something, then we we jump on that quickly. Mm -hmm. We try to reverse that around. Oh, that's great because you know one point four is pretty low, right? But yeah, but it doesn't matter because you now have something that's a baseline where you're going to be able to improve upon, and you're going right. to you have a lot of ways to go. Like so, the app yeah. I'm working on is four point oh. Okay, <laughs> right. So I don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> like I yeah. can't celebrate that. Um, yeah, and actually, I think it was three point nine eight a year ago. And that's not to say that the app is great, but by the measures of code climate, right. we got it to 4.0 and we can continue to improve the code, but there's no win from that. So, right. or at least not in like a graphable way. So I think that that's pretty cool. And we love code climate. We use it on everything we work on and um, that's a good, good way to do it. Another project I spun it up on, um, the GPA came back uh, 0.2. So yeah. we've, we've got considerable wow. more work to do with that one. But again, you look on the bright side, yep. it can only go up. It can almost That's literally right. only go yes, up. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I don't think Code Climate has negative scores. <laughs> no. And so that's the beauty of it is taking something that is like, you know, there's a very easy measurable way to, to determine that it, that it needs to be better and making it better. Another thing you can look at on a team, like, you know, maybe if you've got like this really really, really high bar for, for quality and you're looking for other, other things to measure, I think you're, it's, it's, hard to put a, it's hard to put an exact measure on it. It's almost always a fuzzy measure. Mm -hmm. But the unit that you use to determine how long it takes you to add a feature to the system. Right. So like if, if you have a unit of X complexity and it takes you six hours to add something of that complexity, how does that formula change over time? Does it take you longer and longer to add something about the same complexity? So something six months ago that was complexity of score of like say two, you know, just on whatever scale you make it, and then something today that's a complexity score of two, those two features should take you about the same amount of time mm -hmm. to add to the system. And if that's a trend that's in the negative direction, then you know that's kind of worth looking worth right. looking at. Right. Yeah, that's a little bit harder to measure because it's a very fuzzy metric, and fuzzy metrics are have a lot of noise in them. Kind of the same way that, you know, or you could take a look at your velocity, like if you're keeping track of velocity and your, right. if your team dynamics have been relatively stable, um, then you can take a look at like what's the velocity curve looked like. Yeah. And are there changes that you can make to the code that would improve velocity? Cool. So you've been doing this work with the team at Corgibytes. Mm -hmm. Great, interesting name, by the way. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And right on your webpage, there was a couple interesting things that jumped out at me. Like you're you're selling this legacy thing. So like right, your hero image tagline is, "We love maintaining and improving existing code." 
Yes. So it's like you're putting a stake in the ground. Yeah. So is that the majority of work you're doing now as a company? It, it's exclusively the work we're doing as a company. So we will not work on new apps. My hypothesis, and it would be really interesting just to hear what you guys, what you, you think about this, like given what the work of ThoughtBot does. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed that with, with myself anyway, that a pattern that I've noticed is that many of the things that I get asked to work on from scratch mm-hmm. are ideas that haven't yet been proven in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the value of that being done perfectly and beautifully, I think is somewhat diminished until you know that somebody's willing to pay for it. So it's kind of like the idea of like having this beautiful widget that nobody wants to buy. It's beautiful and it was really expensive to produce and it's beautifully crafted and yet it's also useless because it has no it has no value in the marketplace. And so in the essence that like for software that needs to like either solve a problem or needs to be sold in, in some fashion, if you haven't yet demonstrated the value of that solution, then building that solution in a beautiful way has you know diminished value. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. That's why a big part of what we do is not develop software. A big right. part of what we do is make sure that the business will be successful and validate the business idea. Uh, we do a lot of design, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes the MVP is not at all what people expect it's going to be. It could literally be, you know, a sign-up page uh, where gotcha. we collect people and then interview them. So. That's a big part of what we do. And then once we have that validation, we see it as our mission to create a solid platform, you know, base that the future of the company could be built upon. Gotcha. Yeah, and so the the way I'm choosing to look at it is that there is value in that hack. There's yep. value in having that MVP be a total hack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that if, you know, if it is just slapped together with, uh, you know, shoestrings and duct tape, and it even with that, they're able to produce enough revenue to then improve upon it. Right. Then you know that's kind of the that's the starting point that I'm more interested in starting with, because I like I like making things more beautiful, and I like making be- I like working on beautiful things mm-hmm. or like at least finishing something when it's when it's beautiful. Yeah. And I found uh, a lot of pressure when starting with something new, just getting it done quickly. Mm-hmm. And I felt like a lot of people were asking me to produce that hack. Yeah. And that's not something I was all that interested in doing. And I was finding it very difficult to produce a filter as a business owner for getting the people who are asking for a hack to select out. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's on the website that I found interesting was you say any language, any platform, any framework. Is that actually true? It's not actually true yet. Okay. So, no, like that, that's definitely, that's a goal. Gotcha. It's, it's no, no, yeah. No, I'm, I try to be honest about it. Uh, I guess just not on the website. All, we have three clients at the moment and they're all Rails. Okay. But we do have members of the team, primarily myself, with lots of experience on different technology stacks. So I've yeah. done a lot of dot, dot .NET work in the past. I've been you know, speaking to different .NET groups and chatting with with businesses that have you know .NET apps to see if they would be interested you know in having us help out. So like the the goal is to have you know a polyglot organization mm-hmm. that can tackle any problem in any language, any platform, any framework. That's certainly the goal. It's not the reality right now. I have this hypothesis that the skills that are needed to improve something are going to somewhat transcend language right. and and framework. And so the, you know, like the problem-solving skills needed to actually hunt down and fix a bug, the problem-solving skills needed to figure out how to um, manipulate a design yeah. to support a new feature, that those will be universal. Yeah. So, and that could not pan out, but you know, that's their current hypothesis. No, I think you're right, but I think that extending that thought one step further or a couple steps further brings me to one of the thoughts that I have and concerns that I have that I want to ask you about, which is in my experience, when you have actual problems on a legacy application – 
they're not caused by technical reasons. Like it goes to the root of like most problems in a company or with a software system are actually communication problems mm -hmm. or expectation settings or corners being cut because business people are forcing the team to cut corners, those kinds of things. Like, so can you solve those? If you run into a situation where those are the actual problems, how are you tackling those? Or are you sort of focusing exclusively on ones where the problems are technical and not, not person problems? I think so far we've been focusing on the on the ones where they're technical. Mm -hmm. I think the person problems are, are naturally going to happen. I think that's you know very true that especially when we're looking at apps that that support a business. Right. Um and, and most do. You know, most of the ones that we work on commercially you know definitely support a business. The ones that are written really well model that business really well. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a problem, then it's probably a problem in both. Like there's also, you know, a problem either in the business process or in the communication or in um, the way that their model attacks the problem that they're facing with, the way they're modeling their domain. Right. And the software is accurately representing you know, their mental model of, of their problem. Mm -hmm. But you kind of will often have to fix both. I haven't yet encountered that um, on the apps that I've been working on. The, you know, the apps that I've been working on have been usually like the software is seen as lagging. Yeah. And so the, the goal is to get the software to catch up to where the, the organization wants to be. Yeah. So the organization itself recognizes that its current model is broken. Yeah, you've mentioned test coverage before. Uh, mm -hmm. The apps you're working on, do they primarily come to you with test coverage or not? Um, no. So the, the biggest app that I'm working on came with about, was about 40% covered, which mm -hmm. wasn't too bad. Mm -hmm. The other one has a, it's a broken test suite, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's not run, it hasn't been run in years, and the majority of the tests fail. Right. And so that could be one of the areas where there's actually organizational resistance for some reason to writing tests. Would you even be able to do this? Would you even be able to take them as a customer? Yeah, so my hope is that once once we've actually signed ink on contracts, that they've bought into the idea that that's something that needs to be cleaned up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if they're not interested in, in improving and investing in that area, then they're probably not the best fit. Yeah. So going back to Corgi Bytes, I'm interested in the startup story. You started in 2009? Yes. And you reconnected with your co-founder, Andrea, who at your 10-year high school reunion? Yes. Okay. But she's not technical. She's not technical. Yeah. No, her her, uh, her background is in sales and marketing. Presumably, you knew her pretty well in, in high school? Yeah, we were really good friends. We, uh, we never dated, mm -hmm. but you know, we, were, we were definitely good friends. Yeah, we met at the high school reunion and went on a date and then... The business. Okay, and so the dating came. Relationship. So, <laughs> I know where this is going, but the listener might not have. So it might oh, have yeah. seemed weird that you brought Sorry. up the dating. But no, <laughs> it's good. So the dating actually came first, not the business. Yeah, within a few minutes of the business. Like uh, we <laughs> talked about the business on that date. So okay, because I had been um, I had been following her on Facebook and knew that she was giving uh, talks on marketing. Uh -huh. And at the time, I had Query Bytes. It was doing. It was like version zero of its uh, of its business model, mm -hmm. and I had like I had built this app. I had gone through the effort of posting it online. Nobody had bought it other than me to test that everything was was working. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, trying to pick her brain for. I was thinking of you know calling her up to pick her brain for for marketing advice. And when she she heard the problem I had, she was like, oh yeah, that's not solvable. But with your skills, you could do this, 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 this. And mm -hmm. so you know. <laughs> <laughs> So you eventually went and got married. Yes. <laughs> so it took about two years, which is a respectable time frame for yep. both starting a business and getting married. <laughs> but 
how has it been running a company with your wife? It's awesome and it's hard and it's really it's really rewarding. The the challenges are like different than challenges that you know other other friends we have who who don't work with their spouses or uh, don't work with their partners. You know, like they'll be working really hard to make sure that they're they're hanging out together. And you know, we're physically located with each other all the time. Right. So it's not about like space. And yet we still need to like plan a date night in our schedule right. in order to, and, and we try really hard not to talk about work on, right. on that, on that night. There have been evenings where I've been wanting to complain about my boss <laughs> and, you know, I've wanted to complain about a client and really just wanted to, you know, just wanted my wife to listen. And instead her project manager hat comes on, you know, <laughs> so yeah. like that, the, that definitely you know, presented a challenge. And, you know, we really worked through a lot of those. It's, it's awesome because we really take advantage of the flexibility that owning our own business gives us and that we have complete control over our schedule. So, you know, we get to the office relatively late. I also work relatively late. We don't stress out about taking a lunch break at an exact time or mm-hmm. for an exact period of time. So we really built in a lot of the lifestyle flexibility that we like. My wife likes to talk about it in terms of work-life integration instead of work-life balance. Like we kind of commingled the two. Right. Do you worry about that? Like, obviously, you haven't diversified your risk if something were to go wrong with the business. <laughs> well, so we have and we, we haven't. We, so when we are the first version of our business model was that we were leveraging Andrea's content marketing skills mm-hmm. and her copywriting skills. And we were trying to partner with designers to build uh, websites and apps. And the idea being that the person with the idea would go to the designer and uh, the designer would need, you know, content and development resources. Yeah. And so then we would partner with these freelance designers and build awesome apps. Mm-hmm. And the, when we when we went to go validate that with other designers, they were like, yeah, that sounds great. That'd be awesome. And we somehow made that work for a year and a half, but didn't really build anything more complicated than a, you know, content management system. Mm-hmm. And then pulled back and reconsolidated our resources. Like I went out and got a full-time job. She went out and got a full-time job. And then, you know, while I was still working full-time for someone else, I had the idea that because we were still getting requests for her copywriting on a freelance basis, Mm -hmm. that we spin that out into its own brand. And so for that, we created the brand Brandvox. Mm -hmm. You know, Brandvox has still been running. um, And and through that, Andrea has been, you know, working on a book and, you know, developing some of her own work and doing some some of her own consulting. Mm -hmm. And so now you're both back to full-time on those ventures? She's not full time on Brandbox at the moment. Mm-hmm. I've been needing some help on the on the Corgibyte side, yep. so she's she's been stepping in. So, but between those both things, you're both you're, that's 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 the hope is that yeah, yeah we're yeah we're both full time on those yep. things, and yeah she's been full time on Brandbox for a while, and I've been full time on Corgibytes, and she's just now starting to kind of spin Brandbox down and, and help out a little bit with Corgibytes more. So and all along she's been like the strategic kind of vision behind Corgibytes. She'll mm-hmm. be like you know you need to be doing this this and this and when I actually do those things, there's success. So it's, it's been really helpful to have her. Yeah. Is the team more than just the two of you now? It's the, it's the two of us. And then we have one full-time contractor who we're hoping to turn into an employee soon. And then we have another a part-time contractor. Great. You know, we're, we're looking to, to grow as we, as we can find clients to do so, mm-hmm. you know, kind of based on this hypothesis that there will be people out there who have, have apps that they, that they want improved and that there will be developers out there who want to focus their career in this direction. 
So in order for it to work, those two things have to be true. <laughs> yeah. Well, so congratulations on your success so far, and I wish you, you all the success in the future. Thanks. Uh, Scott, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? I'm M. Scott Ford, all one word on Twitter. Also, Corgibytes on Twitter. And then um, mscottford.com is my personal blog, although I haven't posted to it in quite a while. And then corgibytes.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, everybody, just a quick announcement. We want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll be taking next week off. In the meantime, check out ThoughtBot's newest podcast, The Bike Shed. In this new podcast, which you can check out at bikeshed.fm, ThoughtBot developers Sean Griffin, Derek Pryor, and others discuss ThoughtBot's experience in web development. In the first episode, which is just released, Sean and Derek talk about their experience strictly using Sandy Metz's rules on a Rails app. This podcast is going to be pretty technical. Check it out at bikeshed.fm. Show notes for this episode can be found at giantrobots.fm slash 124. This episode was recorded and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks so much.